Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This time, how to get it right when you're tasked to make a moment of history. As we've seen over the past few weeks, it's a lot about rehearsals. What you don't see, it's the long hours on an evening spent polishing kit, bulling boots, polishing the thousands of shiny metal items that the military likes to wear on their uniforms. From an individual guardsman's guide to the man leading thousands of troops in the armed forces' biggest ceremony for 70 years. As with all events, I will end up proving the route to make sure we've got enough space to put our bands into position, to make sure the barrier's are in the right place, to make sure the manhole covers have been sanded so the horses don't slip. All of that attention to detail. And the drone attack on President Putin's home. From a military perspective, it's not significant, but my goodness, that will be a very symbolically important attack at the heart of the Kremlin. Professor Michael Clark will explain whether this becomes a pivot point in Russia's war against Ukraine. So, as we speak, Mike, it's just two days until the coronation and an historic weekend ahead for the armed forces. Looking forward to it? Oh, very much so, yes. I should be watching it on television. And it's a, it's a great spectacle, this sort of thing. Of course it is. And uh, the armed forces will all be there. I was just checking back, actually, at the, uh, the um, Edward VII coronation. 30,000 troops were in London from all over the empire as it then was, and that was probably the grandest coronation you could ever imagine from a military point of view. This one will be a great deal smaller, six, 7,000 mm-hmm. troops. Nevertheless, um, it will actually show Britain, the military side, the ceremonial side of Britain, I'm sure it will show it at its very best. So how do you make a moment of history and ensure it goes right? Preparation, of course. Six months of it have culminated in dozens of rehearsals. The UK's most senior officers have not just been closely watching those rehearsals, they've been taking part, including the Chief of Defence Staff, Admiral Sir Tony Radekin. I feel uplifted, excited and grateful for the amazing team that we have who pull these things together. And I'm excited because I think the spectacle is going to be amazing, particularly when the whole of the armed forces that have been involved in the ceremonial aspects muster behind Buckingham Palace in the garden and the opportunity for us to give three cheers to their majesties and I think we're all looking forward to it and these rehearsals are really important so that we can we can do our part representing the nation and that's very very special. Three cheers for his majesty the king and her majesty the queen. Hip, hip. So today this is an uh, RAF odium uh, that's kind of been descended upon by Army, Navy and Air Force. 7,000 people, everything mar- marked out so that it ref- reflects London, opportunity to, to go through our drills. And you've got the British Armed Forces, you've got 35 Commonwealth nations that will also be represented, six overseas territories. Um, this is going to be a fantastic spectacle and we're proud to be, to be taking part. And and it, you know, people like me and the rest of the chiefs and I'm sure uh, you know, the men and women that are on parade, we need to practice our drills. Well, Forces News reporter Claire Sadler has been following the preparations and will be there for the big day. Hi Claire, so uh, what can we expect to see the Armed Forces doing? 
Well, I mean, as you'd imagine, Kate, every element of the armed forces are going to be represented on the day because, as you heard, it's going to be the biggest ceremonial operation for 70 years. Now, let's start with those processions. There's going to be two of them accompanying their majesties to and from Westminster Abbey. The first one, the King's procession, it's the smaller of the two. That's the one taking them uh, to Westminster Abbey. Around 200 personnel involved in that, all centred around the sovereign's escort of the household uh, cavalry mounted regiment then you've got the return journey that's the coronation procession it'll follow the same route to Buckingham Palace but this is going to be much bigger around 4,000 personnel involved in that uh, making it the you know the biggest ceremonial operation of its kind for a generation we're also going to have those route liners that we always see you know about a thousand forces I think from all three services lining the route so it's going to be a spectacle as you would expect representing the diversity and traditions of all the UK and Commonwealth and armed forces troops and as we just heard the British overseas territories represented as well actually I was at a reception um, last night at the Palace of Westminster meeting some of those overseas territory troops Honestly, they couldn't be more excited. They are Mm. so emotional and pleased to be involved in it. Um, So it's going to be a very colourful event. Of course, we expect to have those gun salutes that we always see at these big events as well. 400 personnel involved in those firing from... 13 locations across the country and from His Majesty's ships too. And they're going to take place at exactly the moment that the King is crowned. And it wouldn't be the spectacle we expect without a fly past. So Mm. the coronation fly past, 60 aircraft from all three services again, flying over the Mall. It'll be that final crescendo of events on Saturday. As we expect to see, the royal family will watch that from the balcony at Buckingham Palace. It's going to be six minutes long, that fly past. Involved in that, helicopters, Battle of Britain Memorial Flight Spitflyers, some of the modern aircraft that we hope to see, the F-35s. So it's going to be a true spectacle in, in the sky as well as on the ground. And, of course, it wouldn't be a fly past without the, uh, without the red arrows as well, trailing their red, white and blue. Of course. And Claire, they've had months of planning, but still the pressure is really on to get it right on the day, isn't it? I mean, goodness, the pressure must be huge. Let's talk about Garrison Sergeant Major W01 Vern Stokes. He has been a busy, busy man over the past few years. His responsibility is all ceremonial duties across the UK. So he's had some big jobs, including uh, the funeral of Her Late Majesty the Queen, His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh and the Platinum Jubilee. So he's had some practice. Um, He knows all about perfection. He's been part of this planning team since November and he was telling me it's actually a really small team that comes up with the plan. He's the one who's got to deliver it on the day. Um, On Coronation Day, he'll be located uh, at the side of the Gold State coach and he has the key role of stepping off for the procession from his position uh, in Parliament Square. He is going to be up at the crack of dawn on Saturday. Well, it's going to start nice and early because, as with all events, I will end up proving the route to make sure we've got enough space to put our bands into position, to make sure the barrier's in the right place, to make sure the manhole covers have been sanded so the horses don't slip, all of that attention to detail. And then I shall go and have a cup of tea and breakfast, uh, just like everybody else will, and then I'll get ready and, and de- deploy probably before everybody else and just oversee their deployment to make sure they're in the right place at the right time and then very much into the delivery of the event. And do you, do you enjoy them? I love them. I love them. I've really 
privileged position and and I don't take anything for granted, nor should anybody who's involved in the coronation. Uh, so it's it's a real pinch yourself moment um, and I'm really looking forward to it. And, and afterwards I'll be able to reflect and, and say to myself, I've taken part in something quite incredible and be really proud of what I've achieved. Uh, and Mike, is the role for the forces purely ceremonial or do they also play a functional part in this huge event? Oh, yes, they do in a, in a sort of deeper sense. I mean, they play a functional part because they're lining the route along with police. Of course, none of their weapons are loaded, remember. They don't carry any ammunition with them, although they've got bayonets on their, uh, on their rifles. But only the police carry loaded weapons on these occasions. Um, but they have a much more subtle role because one of the, the, the key institutions of our society is the monarchy. And the, the, the armed forces take their role exactly from the monarchy. It's part, it, it goes right into the fabric of our society. So in celebrating the monarchy, we are automatically celebrating the role of the armed forces. And remember, the, the British monarchy is the third biggest brand in the world, in the world, behind Google and Microsoft. It's the third, the British royal family, the third biggest brand. It's worth £17 billion a year to this country. It costs about half a billion, costs about four, four hundred million a year to keep up which people complain about but it brings in 17 billion every year for its brand image and that royal family would only be a, a bit of chocolate box uh, a sort of trapping if it wasn't that it was connected to the the military which runs deep into the fabric of our society and it gives us the sort of stability that we always take for granted in this country and Mike, there was talk of this being a slimmed-down coronation. How does the military's job this time compare with 70 years ago for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth? Well, it will be smaller, just in numerical terms, but it won't feel smaller, I guarantee that. And it, it reflects the fact... Um, that in 70 years, Britain is a different sort of country. 1953, the country I was born into, was a very different country to the country that it is now. And, you know, when the Queen was buried last year, in the Queen's funeral, that was absolutely perfect from start to finish. And I remember thinking then, I thought, this is sad and beautiful, and it reminds us of who we are and where we live. And I think that this coronation, I think it'll be perfect, and I think that too will remind us of who we are and where we live. And I, I will reflect much on that on Saturday. And Claire, there's one very big difference in the military now. There are service women involved. Yes, it seems it seems funny to say that now, doesn't it? Because we're so used to seeing women across our armed forces and they will be represented from all three services um, on the day, as you'd expect. One um, particular uh, regiment, the King Street Royal Horse Artillery, uh, they are the ones that are going to be firing the six-gun salvo at Horse Guards Parade when the King, um, when that coronation takes place. Now, interestingly, in the King Street Royal Horse Artillery, they've got a huge percentage of female soldiers. Five out of eight of the officers um, serving in that regiment are female. Uh, so they're a good example of, of what we can expect to see. Um, and the commanding officer of the King's Troop, she's the third woman to hold that position. She'll be the parade commander and she'll be leading the mounted unit for that coronation. And Claire, you've witnessed some of the military rehearsal for this. How's it gone? Yeah, I mean, it's been incredible. I was in Aldershot to see um, the rehearsal there with 700 guardsmen, um, officers and the bands of the Household Division rehearsing. It was really amazing to see. Um, 
they marched 12 abreast. So when we were filming ahead of them, our minders kept saying to us, they will not stop for you. There were no pavements because they took up the whole road and the pavement <laughs> marching, <laughs> down, marching down the road. And they, they kept saying, yeah, if you get too close, they won't stop. So once they got within a certain distance, we sort of had to leg it, throw the tripod over the fence and dive into the uh, the grass on the side to get out of the way. But those, seeing those bands and that number of troops sort of marching, and that's only a small percentage of what it will be on the day. It's really quite um, awe-inspiring, I have to say. And then when you speak to those taking part, uh, there is a real tangible feeling of excitement about being part of this historic event and for many of those that were there uh, that day in Aldershot it was their first rehearsal they'd come straight from operational roles to take part um, and there were those who got their Opshada medals that morning for their part in training um, Iraqi troops but including one man I spoke to Guardsman Oliver Agatha Kleos uh, of the Grenadier Guards. Yeah we're all very confident I wouldn't say we're nervous because we're all used to these type of situations having to do something that's so big as such as this coronation. But yeah, we'll 100% get it right. I know that you have recently got your Opshader medal. So how yeah. do you um, sort of adapt from, from those kind of operations to then being here and doing ceremonial duties? It's just a thing you have to just get used to of being out on operations and then coming back and being straight in to rehearsing for something like the coronation. So you kind of get the best of both worlds, if you know what I mean. So it's not always green soldiering. Sometimes you're in your tunic, marching up down the mile. Uh, yeah. He's going to be one of the street liners on the day, one of those uh, 7,000 servicemen and women making a real moment of history. Claire, really good to talk to you. And I'm so glad that you didn't get flattened by those marching uh, rehearsals there. Have close. fun on the day. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Have fun on the day. Now, let's go from the huge scale to the very smaller scale. Each soldier, sailor and aviator has their own preparations to make. Forces News journalist Julian Pereira knows the drill very, very well from his 14 years as a soldier in the Grenadier Guards. I took part in no fewer than five um, Troop in the Colour ceremonies uh, for the Queen's birthday parade, um, state opening of Parliament and state visits. So what do you do? How do you prepare? What's it like? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot that actually goes on in the background. Um, as we've seen over the past few weeks, it's a lot about rehearsals. But on the personal level, what you don't see, it's the, the long hours on an evening spent polishing kit, bulling boots, polishing, uh, you know, the thousands of um, metal shiny bright items that the military likes to wear on their uniforms and yeah it's just long evenings early mornings just so you look the part and I think that's the key it's that professionalism you're putting your best face forward and and there's officers going to be inspecting you on the morning and the last thing you want is to be picked up that your kit's not in in correct order yeah apart from looking the part what else do you have to do to get ready well fitness is a big thing I mean you need to be actually quite fit to for, for the hours on end standing there you need to be well hydrated so the night before no alcohol but yeah you're, you're keeping hydrated you need to be fit to hold those rifles you know the rifles are uh, around about five weigh about five kilos but when you're presenting one of those rifles out to your front it um can feel like a million years yeah, I was going to ask you that because, you know, when I've talked to people before about preparing for a big event, maybe it's a, an athlete for a race or something like that. They have a special routine, like they have food that they always eat, that kind of thing. Did you have anything like that? 
Um, I wouldn't say that it was just making sure you got on calories because you burn a lot of incredible amount of calories actually carrying out these duties. You know, sometimes you're out there for three, four hours, if not some people more. You want to get a really good hearty breakfast um, the morning of. Um, and like I say, getting as much uh, fluids as possible. Yeah, plenty of fluids, but perhaps not too much because that could have problems of it in itself, couldn't it? Absolutely, yeah. You've, you've not got very much um, <laughs> scope for um, for any relief. So, yeah, it's a case of, um, yeah, you, you want to time everything um, to perfection, really. So your body's like a machine. Um, how did you feel going into a big ceremonial event? Were you nervous or does it become like routine, a bit of a bit of a bore really no i would say the opposite i mean just every time it's just a a new parade every single time you're you may be doing a new role so you just can't afford to switch off at all you you know you each parade is is slightly different there's different music there's different timings different words of command the list is endless and um no you've got that constant um you know pride um and you know all i can say is i defy anyone on parade to not feel a huge sense of pride when marching along the mile you know, all so it's exciting. Step. Yeah, I'd say it's, it's de- yeah. You definitely get excited beforehand, and you just don't. You, the, and the crowds are cheering, waving, screaming. It just all <laughs> adds to that excitement. And for the ceremonial side, what kind of preparations do you have to make mentally? I, for me, it's that um, you know you don't want to be the one to mess up your words of command. You don't want to be the one that slips and falls, or you don't want to be the <laughs> one that faints on faints on parade because you weren't sufficiently hydrated enough. So, Julian, um, did anything ever go wrong for you? I, I had a couple of moments where maybe I came close to my vision started um, creeping Lowering, away. Really? What, what, yeah, what, were you, what was happening? It was on Trooping the Colour, uh, oh goodness, which year? It was, must have been 2012, 2013. And um, yeah, just it was just unbearably hot um, and to the point where I thought, I just don't think I'm going to stand off any longer. But I just about managed to you know, keep myself going until the next word of command was given and we got to move. Wow, well done. <laughs> how, do you, how, how do you think the 7,000 servicemen and women taking part will be feeling in the final hours running up to the coronation? And what will it mean to them on the day? For anyone on parade, I think there'll be not one man or woman on parade that day who is just not going to um, just have huge pride in the knowledge of what they're taking part in, of, uh, you know, such in a historic moment. You know, there's going to be millions of people watching around the world. And I think, you know, they have that great pride in knowing that they're part of it. And how are you going to be spending the day? <laughs> I'm working that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So interesting that you've actually crossed the line now and you're on the media side of things. What's it like sort of filming it or recording it for posterity when you're not actually taking part as a member of the armed forces? I don't know. I think for me, it's, it's a part of um, being able to be a part of picking out those um, interesting snippets and stories that maybe the traditional media may not scope in on Ooh, and things that I'll know that like are going what? behind the scene. Just in regard, I'd say the relationship that, like, say, the the King's Company now has with, you know, the current serving monarch, I think, you know, there's a lot of history behind the regiment, especially, you know, the Grenadier Guards and that close relationship. And it's and it's pointing out those stories and, and letting people kind of know that relationship and how it works. Mm, and um, does part of you actually miss uh, being on parade and taking part yourself? um yeah yes and no i i think you know that that's a that's you know old me i absolutely love uh you know watching you know former colleagues do well and and especially seeing them now they've progressed through the ranks and doing really well for themselves so that's that's fantastic to see but uh no i, I sit there as a bit of an armchair expert on <laughs> what i would have done and what i wouldn't have done but um no it's fantastic to watch and you know i'll always 
Um, always do so. Okay, Julian. Um, just how clean do you keep your shoes these days? Well, it's not my shoes. I keep my partner's shoes clean. Um, oh, really? Partner, yeah, absolutely. It's it's because it, I don't typically. Well, I don't wear shoes all the time, and but to see other dirty shoes is just not not good. So I'll sit there with my uh, boot <laughs> polish and uh, brushes, which I've still got, and they'll get a good clean. Julian Pereira, really great to speak to you. I hope you have a good day on Saturday. And you too. Uh, Mike, uh, these ceremonial duties take up a lot of time and effort for the forces. Does it have any value for their core defence duties, though? Yes, it does, uh, in the sense that um, they aim to be good at everything they do. And this sort of thing, you know, tests them in a different way. And you can see this all over the world. If you're looking at good forces, they're good at the ceremonial side. If you look at American ceremonial, it's different to ours. It's a bit more jazzy very often. It's a bit less, uh, a bit less straight, but it's good. Everything they do is good because they train and they practice. And it's, it's, it just reflects the culture of excellence. And, that, and that's important, you know, because if, if the public don't believe that these troops who look so wonderful on parade, if they don't believe that they are really good in combat, they're really good in operations, then when they're on parade, they just look like chocolate soldiers. It's mm. a bit like currency. It's all to do with credibility. And if, if on parade they look as if they mean what they say and they do what they're told properly, then you know that they'll do that in operations as well. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrap. Right, a significant event to talk about in Russia, a social media video of a small explosion at the Kremlin on Tuesday night. Moscow says it was a Ukrainian drone attack and an assassination attempt on President Putin. Ukraine firmly denies both those claims. Micah, I'll get your thoughts on that in a moment. I just want to listen to retired Air Vice Marshal Sean Bell and his analysis of the footage. First of all, the drone doesn't appear to be a very fast drone. And also, we can see it's not a particularly large drone. And whilst that, it's very difficult to tell accurately, but it doesn't look like a big aircraft-sized drone, but it's also not a micro-drone. If we wind the footage forward a little bit further, we see that the drone doesn't actually hit its target, that actually misses the top of the building and explodes just after it goes past the top of the building. Um, so it may have some sort of proximity charge to it, or it may have been the operator, having realised he was going to miss, actually detonates it uh, just above. Part of the burning wreckage falls onto the roof and that's important because later on there's another bit of footage that seems to imply there's been a hole into the roof whereas in reality it hasn't, it's just burning uh, wreckage. That's not a lot of smoke for an explosion, that's more a hand grenade sized explosion, not a bomb sized explosion which gives an idea of the sort of relative charge that's been involved in this attack. So what do you make of it Mike? Well, I've been looking overnight at some of the forensic material that's coming in now with geolocation uh, work that's been done by some of the experts out there. It's very good indeed. And so what we know from the uh, geolocation is that um, there were two drones. One of them was at uh, uh, 27 minutes past two in the morning. That came from the west. And that's the one that Sean mentioned that um, seems to put seemed to burn the, the dome of the Senate Palace. And then 16 minutes later, at uh, 43 minutes past two, a second one came from the east, from the other direction. And that one seemed to fly past and then exploded in the air after it passed the dome. And so these bits of film are actually films, uh, bits of film of two separate drones, one from the east, one from the west. 
Um, the as as Sean said, I mean the, the explosive material on them was tiny, absolutely tiny, and I doubt that they've even damaged the dome. Although they may have injured, there were three fellas climbing the dome after the first explosion. You can see three fellas um, actually climbing the the ladder around the dome, to, presumably to assess the damage, and they might have been hurt in the second one, even though it went off slightly on the other side of the dome. So um, that's the, that's the forensic material that we've got. Um, the, 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 and I would point out that the Ukrainian border is 450 miles away from Moscow. I mean, the chances that these were launched from Ukraine seems to me very remote indeed. And they are indeed denying it. Is there any plausible strategic reason for them to want to do this, though? No. I mean, I think it would be monumentally stupid of Kiev to have tried something like this. First of all, it's only a stunt. This wasn't yeah. a proper explosive. This is a fireworks stunt. Um, and so to, as it were, you know, raise the raise the temperature in this way by uh, apparently, as we're breaching the the implicit rules that the international um, uh, world has set down for Ukraine, don't attack Russia directly. So to do that is would be stupid. The, the quickest way for Ukraine to lose this war would be to launch some sort of big strategic attack inside Russia, mm -hmm. because the West would just pull out. The West would stop supporting Ukraine. That would lose them the war. I cannot believe that they would do it. And that the, the trivial nature of this attack in, you know, convinces me that it was possibly a freelance group. I mean, maybe there's a, there are Russian groups. Uh, the Ross Partisan group in Russia um, is an, an opposition group, and they have already said this was a righteous fire, they called it. But there are other groups as well, and there are groups in Belarus. And, you know, given that, the, that um, any um, device, any sort of drone approaching the Kremlin would be, uh, would be subject to enormous electronic warfare capabilities in the Kremlin. I mean, all mobile phones go down anywhere near the Kremlin. And so yeah. I suspect that if these drones were aimed at the Senate Palace, they might have had to be aimed by line of sight uh, without guidance, because the guidance would have gone haywire as they got closer. Um, so what do you think? Do you think it, it, it could be a Russian false flag operation, self-inflicted, so it could blame Ukraine? Is that, does that make any sense? That makes more sense. I mean, against that mm. is the fact that it's embarrassing for the Kremlin um, and but that doesn't rule it out. I mean, the Kremlin, remember, in 1999, uh, created explosions in blocks of flats in Moscow and around Russia, killed 300 of their own people. And we know for a fact now that that was an FSB operation in order to justify the war in Chechnya. So, I mean, the Russians are capable of doing this sort of thing. Um, my guess is, at this stage, it's only a guess, is that it certainly wasn't Kiev. It's not likely to have been a deliberate false flag attack, but it might have been a bit of a freelance operation and the Russians will make the most of it because they're now going ballistic, saying, well, this is, an, uh, this is terrorism, an assassination attempt on Putin, which it certainly wasn't, um, and therefore justifies some terrible things we're now going to do in Ukraine. Um, it's, it's not good. Uh, it, it, it'll take the war in, in directions that are not helpful to Ukraine and will actually just increase the, the bitterness inside Russia about the whole thing. So what do, do you think the consequences will be? I think the consequence will be that Russia will expend more ammunition attacking Ukrainian targets, civilian targets. We had another night last night, so there have been four nights now, uh, three, three attacks over four nights. 
which is the 16th big salvo since last October. Uh, whereas these salvos in the past have been over one night, this 16th salvo has been spread over four nights, which indicates to me that the Russians are struggling with their precision munitions. But I suspect we may see more of that. And in a way, that might not do them that much good, because as long as the Ukrainians can keep shooting most of them down, then the Russians are expending their ammunition. But I think there will be a, a as a sort of a revenge element to what the Russians do in the next week while they wait for the Ukrainian second offensive to really begin. And Mike, um, just before we go today, I just want to take us back to where we started on the programme today and the coronation. Now, I was chatting to you earlier this week and I understand you're going to have a rather special celebration with some uh, historic bunting. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> we, we are having a, a coronation uh, party here where I live. And I discovered uh, a month ago, quite by accident, um, that I had a lot of bunting from 1953. The reason was I used to be involved in the theatre and I got hold of, of a lot of bunting for a production of Sergeant Musgrave's Dance in 1974. <laughs> and uh, this was in Wales. And I suddenly discovered we had bags and bags of this stuff um, which had been sitting in the attic for all this time. So it was a pure uh, accident. And on it, of course, are flags of, of countries that no longer exist, like Nyasaland mm. and Tanganyika. So mm. I have historic bunting to put out, 70 years old, which and it'll all be out there on Saturday. I love it, Mike. You even get geopolitics into your bunting. Have a really good day on Saturday. <laughs> Professor Michael Clark, thank you for your time. And my thanks to all of our guests. Uh, we'd also like to say another thank you to the many guests who've joined us in 2022 to help us explain defence in a particularly turbulent year. This week, we were honoured to be given the Radio Academy's ARIA Bronze Award for Best News Coverage across UK radio and podcasting last year. Thank you also for listening and being part of our conversation. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday, but there's an extra edition of the SITREP podcast online now. As King Charles is crowned, you can hear about his first steps on the path to becoming Commander-in-Chief from the man who taught His Majesty to fly. I was just a, a normal flight lieutenant at Little Risington Central Flying School doing my job when I was selected for this. And... Uh, Obviously, it was an unusual job, and one was in certain fear and trepidation. I met Prince Charles, there was, when he came back from a visit to Malta. Um, when do you want to start flying? Today, please. Well, we didn't let him do that. We kept him for a week. How did I feel? Yes, a certain uh, nervousness and so forth, but he, he enjoyed it from the start and, and showed great ability. That's a bfbs.com slash sitrep or wherever you get your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.